Ephesians chapter 1. Let me uh, bring you up to speed. Last week, we saw something incredible. The Apostle Paul revealed God's audacious, mind-blowing, globe-encircling plan for the cosmos. And we read about it in Ephesians 1 verse 10. So if you got your Bible or you can look on the screen with me, I prefer you open up your Bible as well so you see it with your own eyes right there in front of you, all right? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. This is what Paul says. This is the plan. How many of you know our ears should perk up? This is the plan. At the right time, God Almighty is going to bring everything together under the authority of Jesus Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth is coming under the resurrected Lord Jesus who will reign as our ruling and rightful king. And all of creation will joyfully come under his authority and rule. How many of you know that's a pretty big plan? And I just want to say this, there are lots of worldviews that have big plans. Islam is a plan for global takeover. Uh, But how many of you know Islam is not big enough and there's no Islamic leader righteous enough to do what Jesus claims he's getting ready to do? How many of you know uh, global communism is a plan for global dominion? But global communism and every wicked leader that's ever represented that ungodly uh, worldview, every one of those folks was way too tiny to shoulder what Jesus Christ is shouldering. In fact, I, I'll share with you, when I ran for office a few years back, it caused a few heads to turn and some people got really nervous. And what I heard from the opposition was this, that crazy pastor in that crazy church, they're trying to take over Crown Point. Word got out. I'm sorry. I don't know how that truth snuck out, but it got out. How many of you know Jesus has a plan to take over planet Earth for his glory? Because it belongs to him. And the church has a plan for dominion as well. Now, we're not taking over by force like communism. We're not taking over uh, by force like through radical Islam. That's not the plan. How many of you know what we're doing is having a global conquest of love and the power of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God um, and declaring the good news that our God reigns? That's what's happening. And I want to encourage you guys. If you want to be in the sweet spot of what God is doing in the earth today, here's what God God's doing. He's moving all of human history to the great climactic point when everything is going to be brought under the lordship of his son and Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. How many of you think it'd be a good idea to be a part of that now and not have to find out about it when it's too late or not have to find out about it when we're not paying attention to it? This is what God is doing, and only Jesus is beautiful enough, wise enough, powerful enough to actually bring all of humanity under his lordship, bring it all under his dominion. That's what he's doing, and we're, we get to be a part of that. Now, I want you to see what else, because this is the, look at verses 22 and 23 with me. This is from the message paraphrase, but I love the way it says it. At this very moment, at this very moment, Christ is ruling in his church. Can anybody say amen to that? Jesus is in charge of his people, through which, I want you to see this, The church is the vehicle through which Jesus speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. Now, this is awesome. How does Jesus go about global takeover? How does he spread his reign, his loving reign across the world? He does it through the church. We have the privilege of carrying, being the carriers of his presence, being the vehicle through which he speaks and acts. Now, can we just pause right there? I mean, no, this is serious. 
you and the person next to you are the vehicle through which Christ is going to talk to people, through which Jesus is going to work, through which the presence of God gets in every aspect of culture. Let me just tell you, when, when Pastor Mark Coque and his wife years ago, under the training of Pastor Dick and Susie, planted that work in Darhan, Darhan, Mongolia was an incredibly dark place. There was very little gospel witness, and there were very little families who had ever heard of Jesus or encountered Jesus. How many of you know, but people who love Jesus and are encountered by Jesus are sent by Jesus all over. In fact, when we say amen this morning, what's going to happen? You're going to leave here, and, and like a river with many, many tributaries, you all are going to run all over the place. And guess what happens? Everywhere we go, we carry the presence of Jesus. We carry the authority of Jesus. I love Pastor Andrew's words. So it doesn't matter whether you feel like it, because the reality is, your sons and daughters are the Most High God. You're part of His family. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You have been loaded up with gifts. You've been given authority. God's filled you with His Spirit. God's overwhelmed us with His love. And guess what we get to do? We get to represent Jesus. How do people see Jesus? They see Him through us. I mean, this is like serious. You know, I mean, sometimes it's scary. I mean, I can look in the mirror right now and go, really, God, that's the best plan that you have is that the world is going to see you and know you and experience you, and this is what you're working with? Has anybody ever had that thought besides me? I mean, you look at the 12 Jesus chose to take over planet Earth, and they're barely out of the gate. They can't help tripping over themselves, arguing, fighting. They're acting like a bunch of two-year-olds. And you go, Jesus, that was the best you could come up with. Are you kidding me? But guess what? That's the plan. And if that's the plan, we better take it seriously. So how many of you know we got we to gotta get this Christ-like thing going? We, we got to get on mission we got to get centered with what Jesus is doing. we got to take the mission seriously because he's made it clear this is how he's going to do it. And so we asked the question today. That was chapter 1, but we asked the question today. This is a good one. This is what chapter 2 deals with. How is God going to fulfill this plan? How is he going to do it? I love the way the Passion Translation starts chapter 2. It's, it's a continuation of the thought from chapter 1. Of course, we know when the Bible was given to us, there were no chapters and verse stuff in there. And, and it helps you understand the flow. It begins like this. And his fullness, meaning Jesus, his fullness fills you. And so with the fullness of God beginning to go through all of us corporately, we begin to realize that every single disciple, and I want you to hear this, is a unique one-of-a-kind, handcrafted by God, vessel for expressing the fullness of Jesus, all of us together, in every corner of culture, in every sphere of society. And here's what I want you to get from chapter 2. You and I have been called to a masterpiece mission. God is the God of taking master messes and turning them into masterpieces. Can anybody say amen to that? Such were some of us, all of us, master messes that have been transformed by God into masterpieces. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 is like Paul being a prosecuting attorney, building a case for why we need a Savior. And I want you to hear Ephesians chapter 2 because I'm going to give you what I call seven damning realities. This is, 
bad news. If you were sitting in a courtroom and, and the defense attorney was building a case and he lays out the seven bits of, of proof or evidence that I'm going to run through very quickly here, you'd be dropping your head with every bit of evidence because you're realizing that the case against you is almost insurmountable. It, it's, it's, it, it's deadly. And I want you to feel it because here's the deal. This is the problem. In the church in America, if all we do is preach feel-good messages, you're never going to hear the gospel. Because how many of you know the cross does not begin as a feel-good message? There's nothing that feels good about the cross. But can I also say this? We're living in a culture today where if you went up to the average person on the street and you mentioned to them, hey, that Jesus Christ died for you, the, the next logical question would be, Why? Because there's not even an awareness that we need a Savior, let alone that we should be excited about this news. The gospel's good news, but it's only good news when you understand why we need a Savior. So follow along with me. I want to go through this quickly, very quickly. Look at these realities about who we were. And this, this is a picture of the mess that we were. Point number one, we're spiritually dead. Look at verse one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience, and your many sins. Can I just say this? You know, sin, when we embrace it, eat it, partake of it, live under its rule, will kill us. And all of you in this room know what I'm talking about. Some of the hardest times when we're wondering, where's God? You know, Andrew was talking about building an altar. Where's God? How come I don't sense his presence? Can I suggest to, to you, and I'm speaking from experience, that the times when we're living in compromise or the times that we're living in sin are directly opposed to God's presence working and moving in our life. In fact, if some of you feel like, man, I haven't sensed God's presence in a while, can I just encourage you to get before the Lord and ask Him to show you where it is that you've kind of quenched His presence or offended or grieved the Holy Spirit. People that say, ah, I'm good with God, I'm good with God, but their lives are full of sin. Let me tell you what the Bible calls those people, liars. You cannot be good with God and be good with sin at the same time. That's why we have to recover the message of holiness in the church. I'm not talking about a religious holiness, external holiness. I'm talking about a holiness that comes from a transformed heart that loves God and wants to please God. The Bible says this, not that you are sin impaired, this is important, but that you're dead. I don't know about you, but if you're looking for help around your house, maybe you have a home improvement project, you're not going to call a dead person to help you. Let me tell you why. They're not any, of any help. I mean, you know, when it comes to salvation, God doesn't say you're impaired. God says you're dead. Dead means you're not contributing to the process. Dead means dead. Dead means spiritually cut off from God. When that cute little baby comes out of his mother's womb, spiritually dead. They might be kicking and very much alive. But listen, spiritually, that child is dead. What does that mean? Cut off from God. Cut off from relationship with God. This is serious. How many of you know you cannot become a Christian until you first experience a supernatural resurrection from God? You don't need a Band-Aid. You don't need a pill. You don't need the gospel. You need a resurrection from the dead. And only one person is big enough to do it. His name is Jesus Christ. You do not resurrect yourself. 
You do not will yourself into a resurrection. You need somebody to come and put the defibrillator on you, the word and the spirit, and and resurrect your spiritually dead self that cannot have any hope of ever knowing God, let alone pleasing God. Second point, and this is important, you are under Satan's influence and control. Look at what verse 2 says. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Can I just tell you how slick the devil is? Most people that are under his power don't even believe in him. Most people say something like this. I don't believe in all that religious stuff. I'm the captain of my own ship. Once again, this is the Bible. This is not me. This is not my opinion. That's the Bible. The Bible says you're deceived because whether you know it or not, you're either under the influence of the Holy Spirit or you're being influenced by demons. People that are far from God, shaking their fist at God, crying out in rebellion against God, they're their own person. They want nothing to do with God. You think you're running the show. The Bible says you're actually under demonic influence that is seeking to destroy your life. I mean, you know, spiritually dead and under the influence of demons, we're not off to a very good start. In fact, I'm telling you, if you've ever been encountered with a demonic, you realize, I'm not, first of all, hear me, I'm not suggesting that everybody in this room is demonized, demon-possessed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we live in a fallen world. We are born fallen people. We are born cut off from God, and we're living under the influence of the demonic realm that is all around us seeking to deceive people and entrap people. That's the reality. So here's the reality. You're either in the kingdom of God or you are directly under the influence of Satan. Well, I don't believe in Satan. Well, he believes in you. Uh, And he's controlling you right now. That's exactly what he's doing. He's controlling you right now. Let me tell you how he's controlling you. Point number three, we're dominated by lust. The Bible says in verse three, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. Once again, we have people saying, well, you know, I, I'm in control of my own ship. And maybe, maybe you're not uh, under the influence of drug addiction or alcohol. Or maybe, uh, you, you know, you're, you're one of these successful demonized people. You're, you're, you have a good job. You're making a lot of money. You're, the, you're, you're in charge. You're behind the wheel. Um, but here's the deal. Every single one of us is pursuing something in our lives. And whatever it is that we're pursuing, if we're not pursuing it for the glory of God, you're being ruled by your own selfish passions and your own selfish agenda. And how many of you know we are totally, 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 radically self-centered at birth? You know, what, what, why is it that the first word that comes out of your child's mouth, even though you're, Daddy, Dad, 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 no. Are you kidding me? The first word kids know really well is the word no. You don't have to teach them no. What you have to teach them is yes. Why is this the case? Because by nature, by nature, we are incredibly selfish. Now, this is the most, I don't even have to preach this hard, I don't think, because all you got to do is look around, look in the mirror, and we realize how selfish we still are and how we have to keep dying to ourselves. Part of the reason why God gives you a spouse is just to help you and to help me realize, we're still a little selfish, aren't we, Ron? 
It's the truth. You never have to worry about looking out for yourself. You always have to worry about living for the glory of God. It's because we're fallen. So we're spiritually dead. We're under Satan's influence and control. We're dominated by lust. It gets worse. And I mean it. Verse 3, we're under God's righteous wrath. By our very nature, we're subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. You know, I believe every single American believes that at some point we're all going to a better place. It's the most common lie at every funeral. We're all going to a better place. No, we're not. We're all God's children. No, we're not. We're all God's creation. You're only become a child of God through being born again. We're not all God's children, and we're not all going to a better place. We're actually born under the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Is God, is God this meanie up in heaven? He's, he's out to get us? No, no, no. The wrath of God is the righteous anger of God that is displayed against sin, which destroys people made in the image of God, which is why God hates it so much. God doesn't hate people. God hates sin. And the reason he hates sin is sin destroys people that were made to enjoy him and love him and have fellowship with him. That's why he hates sin. That's why he's coming to judge sin. And it's a serious thing to realize, and I want you to hear me today. I'm not trying to be cute or funny or anything else. This is the most serious thing I could ever say. If you're here today and you're far from God or you've never bowed the knee to God, the Bible says, not me, the Bible says you are living under a cloud of the wrath of God now. And all I want you to, anybody with a brain should do this. Fast forward the tape. You're not going to live forever. Christ is coming again. We already heard in chapter 1. What, what's the goal? He's bringing everything under his lordship. He's coming. And the wrath of God is coming. In fact, we said last week in Revelation chapter 4, people are going to be crying out, running from the wrath of the lamb. Isn't that a strange expression? Lamb, a lamb with wrath. So here's the deal. Wouldn't you be asking the, this question right now? Am I ready for that moment? How many think that's a smart question? Am I ready for that moment? You know, there were times growing up in my family, this is, this is the tape that I replayed in my mind. Am I going to follow my friends and do such and such? And then I started thinking about the wrath of dad. I mean, I'm not kidding. There were literally times when I, when I did this. I ain't going to do that because doing the quick cost-benefit analysis, if I get caught, I'm dead. And I don't want to be dead. How you know the, the fear of the Lord produces righteousness? People say, oh, God's a God of love. He doesn't want us to fear him. Then why does he tell you that we're living on, that sinners are living under the wrath of God and the judgment of God is coming and that hell's a real place and that this eternity stuff is for real? Why would he tell us all that stuff if it doesn't mean anything? No, it means something. And we're foolish. We're absolutely foolish to pretend that that's not the case. If I knew that the wrath of God is coming and I am as guilty as sin, then I'll tell you one thing, I'd be looking for a remedy. The good news is there's a remedy. His name is Jesus Christ. So I told you this, spiritually dead, controlled by Satan, dominated by lust. We're not free to control our own destiny. You're dominated by lust. Your lust will destroy you in the end. Under God's wrath, Look at verse 5. Now we get into trash talking. We're godless pagans. Look at what verse 11 says. 
Don't you forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. How many of you know every one of us outside of those of you born Jewish in this room were outsiders, were Gentiles? You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. All right, now we're into trash talking. How many know we were born outside of all the promises and outside of the covenants, but Jesus brought us into the full promises of God? That's the blessing. But we were godless pagans. Look at, look at number six. Separated from Jesus, verse 12. In those days you were living apart from Christ. And look at the result, number seven. This is, this is devastating. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. You lived in this world without God and without hope. I don't know of anything more damning than that. You know, Dante, when he wrote his Inferno, said that over the gates of hell uh, was that anybody who enters here was, is without hope. You're hopeless. And I want to drive this home to our independent, self-made man and woman culture where we think that we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Can I just share this with you? If you understand the gospel and you understand what Paul's saying and you think in terms of your own life, your own future, you think in terms of salvation, here's the conclusion you should come to. I am absolutely in a hopeless condition before God. And here's the second one. And I am helpless to do anything about it. In other words, you're not going to fix you. The gospel is not a self-improvement plan. You don't try to be a better person. You don't try to go to church. You don't try to read your Bible. You don't do those things as a self-improvement plan. You can do nothing apart from the mercy and goodness and kindness of God, which should cause us to be on our face. It should cause us to be crying out for mercy. It should cause us to say, God, help me. God, forgive me. God, I need you. In fact, can I just share this with somebody today? If you're in a position of hopelessness right now, what do you do? One of the greatest things you can do is recognize your need, hit the ground, get before God somewhere in the quietness of your room, and just begin to thank Him for mercy, thank Him for kindness, thank Him for forgiving you, ask Him to change your situation. Tell Him that you're powerless to do anything about it. Tell Him that you're hopeless apart from Him. And what does that do? That points all the glory to our amazing God who takes master messes and turns them into masterpieces. Every one of us in this room was a mess. We were broken. We were hurting. We were far from God. We had no hope. We were in bondage to sin. We looked for, for, for hope and, and help and all kinds of different idols. But at the core of our being, we were selfish to the core, and we were lost as could be, and Jesus interrupted our lostness. You know, people say, you know what? I don't think God will ever save anybody, you know, apart from their free will. I thank God that God never saves anybody because of their free will. Because there's nothing free about who you were. You're dead. All right, just choose me. Choose me. You're dead. You need a resurrection. You don't need a self-improvement plan. You need a resurrection. Only Jesus is big enough and merciful enough and kind enough to chase you down, track you down, rip the blinders off your eyes, swing you off your feet, pull you to his chest, and lavish his affection on you to where you go, yes, 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 you start kissing back. Salvation is kissing back. And it happens It happens after you and I have been loved to life. We learn to kiss back instead of pushing away, running away, rebelling against God. When he loves us to life, all the barriers come down.
and we kiss back because we realize how awesome he is, how loving he is, how merciful he is. There's been three things I want you to see in the next verse that God does for us. I just hit number one. He loves us. Look at verse four. But God, but God, thank you for the but gods in the Bible. But God is so rich. I circled that in my Bible. Not just rich. He's filthy rich in mercy. And he loved us. And I circled this in my Bible. He loved us so much. He doesn't just tolerate us. He loves us so much. And he's so rich in mercy that he'll never run out. So he loved us. Look at the second one here. He liberated us. Even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised us from the dead. It's only by grace that you have been saved. You know, when God calls your name, there's something about God's call over your life that awakens something in our heart. It's supernatural. Can I just tell you? that if your new birth experience is not supernatural, I think you've got a counterfeit. If there was not something that God did in awakening you and causing you to come from death to life, causing you to be spiritual, from being spiritually numb and cut off from God to having your heart that's so alive and so, so, so excited to pursue Him and to know Him. I mean, you know, this is rooted in love for Jesus. This is not religion. This is somebody came into my life when I was so broken and so lost and so hopeless and resurrected me with their love and kindness and lifted me out of my bondage to sin. Why do we have any of our ministries in this place? I'll tell you why we do anything around here. We are absolutely convinced that Jesus takes messes and turns people into masterpieces and that only he can do it. But he loves to do it because he's so rich in mercy, so rich in kindness. He lifts broken people out of the most dreadful situations. That's the God that we serve. He loves us. He lifts us, uh, liberates us, rather than the last one is he lifts us. I want you to see this. Look at verse 6. For he, Jesus Christ, raises from the dead, or God raises from the dead along with Christ. And look at what he did. He seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. You know, all through the Gospels, Paul uses that phrase, united with Christ. We're going to dive into that in the months of November and December leading up to Christmas, uh, and we're going to unpackage what it means to be united in Christ. But I want you to see this today. You know, when God says that he's going to take his people and send them into a lost and broken world, and we're going to be carriers of his presence, how can he say that? Because here's the deal. God's goal from the beginning has been to take that which is broken and dead and twisted and resurrected and turn it into a masterpiece that's beautiful that people want to look at, that dis- displays His glory. And here's the reality. If you're saved today, you're part of God's family. If you're saved today, you're, you're gifted beyond belief. If you're saved today, you're moving in the authority of God on your life. You're favored by God. You're loved by God. God's crazy about you. And here's the good news. If God could do that for you, who is it in your family that's beyond the scope of God's power and mercy and kindness? Who? Who out there? Who, who comes into this place and says, oh, pastor, you know, the, I've heard this before. If I came to your church, the roof would split open and lightning would come down. And I'm like, ha, 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 you puny little godless sinner. Do you understand who you're dealing with? 
Are you kidding me? You think God can't handle your puny, messed up self? God will rock you. That's what God does. Doesn't require splitting open the church roof. It's just a tiny little smirk on the face of God. That's all it requires. Why did God do this? Let me ask the, answer the question real quickly. Why did God do this? Love us, liberate us from sin, lift us out of the muck and the mire, seat us next to himself. Why did he do this? Look at verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth, the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he's done for us who are united with Christ. I love the passion paraphrase. It says throughout the coming ages, we will be the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of his grace and kindness, which was showered upon us in Jesus Christ. This is amazing. Let me paraphrase this for you. God's going to spend forever pointing out in all of his redeemed people the limitless riches of his kindness and grace. Let me tell you how this works. You know, whenever I get a chance to introduce anybody around here, we always love to show what masterpieces they are by the grace of God. My dad used to have this phrase, we're, we're trophies on God's trophy case. And, you know, how many of you have children? What do you, you know, our children aren't perfect. They haven't all arrived. Everybody's in process. But here's what I love to do. I love to introduce my children in public to other people. And, and here's what I generally do. Let, let me tell you about this one. And this is what I love about this one. And this is what this one's really good at. This is the gifting in this one's life. And, and here's what's going to happen. You know, God is going, from all eternity, he's going to be highlighting in us the stories of how he took us from brokenness and redeemed us and restored us. And here's what happens, because he's, he's the master behind the masterpiece. Why did he do this? So he could show off his kindness. Because he's so rich in it. You know, wealthy people don't get bent out of shape when you ask them, hey, can you, can you pick up this tab for me? They're like, oh, sure. It's pocket change. You and I are the pocket change of the greatness of God's kindness that he's going to display forever and ever. You know, it's interesting. I read an article on masterpieces and, you know, art masterpieces. And people were saying, especially over in Europe, more people are traveling. Uh, more people have some expendable cash. They're flying. They're going to these places. A lot of Europeans aren't really digging the fact that everybody's coming over and checking out some of these, you know, treasures like in the Louvre and some of these places. But what happens is uh, all these folks are going in there. But here's the amazing thing. You know, and, and, and I have about this much high culture. I think my Aunt Mary Sue took Marion and I to the Chicago Art Museum one time. One time, I have been to I have been to little league baseball games more than I've experienced high culture. It's a it's a, it's a confession. I'm not proud of it. I'm just confessing. But from what I hear, sophisticated people, when they walk up to the Mona Lisa, mm. They ponder the greatness. And you know what you're really supposed to do? <laughs> Work with me, people. All right. You're supposed to look through Mona Lisa to the master who painted this incredible masterpiece. In fact, when we were in Vietnam, I saw a masterpiece of a sculpture. It was a, it was a sculpture of a lady that had a veil over her face, 
How in the world out of stone do you chisel a veil that looks like she's looking through the veil? It was amazing. I stood there in awe. How do you do that? And here's what they were saying, all right, about the, the selfie culture. The reason people are getting ticked, out at, ticked off at these museums is you got, like, Mona Lisa there doing her little smirk thing. And all these people in there, and here's what they're doing. They're not doing what I just taught you. Art appreciation. No, they're getting their selfies out, their camera. They take a quick picture hanging out in front of the Mona Lisa, and then they're on to the next thing. There's not one ounce of appreciation happening. It's a selfie capture moment, selfie stick thing happening. Can I just tell you this? We should spend our time looking at each other, the masterpieces of God. And I should be able to look through Brent and go, man, you have an amazing God. Because, dude, I know where you came from, and I know who you are now, and I know where you're going. God is awesome. You see what I'm saying? The masterpieces point us to the master. When we point to the master, we realize the greatness of God. One last story. I was sitting on my back porch not too long ago. There was one of those giant butterflies. In fact, Andy, you'll appreciate this. I got a, I got a, a butterfly bush in my backyard because I, I love to watch those butterflies. Big old whopper yellow wings. Just do what butterflies do. You can't track their movement. They're crazy. And I realized as I'm sitting there looking at this incredibly beautiful butterfly that that butterfly was a fat little green worm. If any of you remember the great scene from Bug's Life, when the worm is becoming a butterfly, but it's not quite there yet, and it's flying through the air with a big, chubby, fat worm with these little wings. That's how some of us are, by the way. Big, fu- big chubby, fat worms with, with little wings, but we're beautiful because we're becoming like Jesus. And I sat there. Of course, I get it, you know. We've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're new creatures, you know, being transformed in the image of Jesus. But I'm looking at this butterfly going, dude, you were a fat green worm. Now look at you. I mean, it was amazing. I had an act of worship at that moment because I didn't stop with the butterfly. I went back to the master. I said, God, you are awesome. How much more is he doing this through us? You guys with me? He's turning us into masterpieces. Now, I just got to share this. Last point. Fast forward all the way to that last slide, if you would. Last scripture verse, if you would, Rach. Look at the last sentence. This is also what Jesus did. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious body on the cross. Ah, man, I love this. We're not just masterpieces on missions. We're multi-ethnic masterpieces on mission. Do you know how ridiculous it would be to go to the art museum in Chicago and look at a painting that was painted with just one color? I could paint that masterpiece, by the way. <laughs> Cover the whole thing in white paint. Mm. No, nobody would be doing that. You know why? It's all the colors that make the picture emerge. And here's the picture that's emerging. God is redeeming people from every tribe, nation, language, culture, all the differences that are so sweet, all the food, all the, re- all the beautiful practices that are unique to the cultures, all coming together in this goulash called the church, which is amazing. And we get to come together and we get to partake of it every single week. This is the place where the world comes and sees the master's work because racial and ethnic tension and hatred should be dissolved at the foot of the cross. This should be a place right here in good old Crown Point, Indiana, where 
we see a, an expression of all the rich diversity that's in our community, worshiping under the banner of Jesus Christ every week. That is so awesome to me. That's part of the mission of God, to bring us all together under the lordship of Jesus as masterpieces to display the greatness of his kindness and his mercy towards us. Anybody with me on this? Now, I'm preaching some lofty stuff, but here's the deal. We got, I'm, I'm casting the vision because we're supposed to live it intentionally. We're supposed to get into each other's world. We're supposed to spend time together, and we're supposed to appreciate the masterpieces. Can I share one last thing? I'm, I'm asking you for lots of grace today. Pastor, you asked for one last thing ten times. It's a, it's a fault I have, all right? I, I admit it. Here's what I want you to do. What if we looked at the masterpieces we're married to, the masterpieces we're sitting next to? You know, I dealt with some marriages this week. I gave, I gave a gentleman a homework assignment. I said, at one point, you guys were crazy about each other, right? I said, you actually liked something about your wife at one time, didn't you? I mean, if you didn't, you're a moron, because why did you marry somebody that you think is... Why did you marry somebody that you hate? I got them to agree that that's not what happened, that they actually really liked each other at one time, and there were many, many great qualities. So here I connected the dots. So why don't you tell her? Sit down and write 20 things that you appreciate about your wife. And every day, just tell you. You don't have to overdose, just one. I got a text this week. Our marriage has turned the corner. It's amazing to me. You're sitting next to masterpieces. Have you told them? Have you been in awe? And yet here's the thing that happens in churches. Pastor, I heard you up there preaching way too long, by the way. And I have, (laughs) and I know that you made maybe 50 points that were actually good, but I'm going to point out to you the one that I didn't like. That's not kingdom. Kingdom is stand in awe of the masterpieces that are being made all around you. Now, some of them aren't done yet. In fact, none of us are done yet. Some are have a little more paint. They're a little farther along. But guess what? See the masterpiece and begin to praise what God's doing in people's lives. I knew who you were. I know who you are. You know, Jeff, Jeff and Angie are masterpieces. You know, they're masterpieces. It's, it's just awesome. Oh. You know, when you, when you know from whence somebody came and you know where God's taking them, you just go, God, you're awesome. And they haven't even begun to see yet the impact for generations is going to happen because they allow God to do something in them. Stand to your feet with me. I want to pray for us. If you don't know the Lord today, I, I really want you to respond to what I shared. Believe in your heart. Come to the Lord Cry out for mercy. Let God do something supernatural in you today. I want our ministry teams to come up here. Our prayer, our prayer teams, come on down. I just know that there's some people that came here today and you're, you feel really far from the Lord. Some of you are here today and you're just in hopeless situations. We, we want to fill your heart with supernatural hope today. Come on down and share.
what you're going through and let us pray with you, all right? I want Jeff and Angie Miller to make their way out and their precious family come up front here. We're going to, don't forget to come up and just love on them and, and, uh, and encourage them and let them know you're going to be praying for them and bless them. We're also going to give on the way out. Don't forget if you can uh, sow, whatever it is, a dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, whatever, whatever it is, we're just going to send them out with a great blessing this morning. Father God, thank you that you have chosen in your own amazing, wise way to use pieces of the puzzle like us, Lord, broken pieces sometimes, but you're going to use us to display your glory. So even as we leave here right now, I pray for smiling faces, happy hearts, lives, Lord, eyes that can look out in the world and see what you're doing. God, that we offer hope, that we love people, we serve people, and that we have the privilege now of displaying the beauty of who you are to this world. I just say this in closing as well. We had a prophetic word shared with me during the worship time today of, of the Holy Spirit just literally blowing burdens off people's lives as we were exalting the Lord and crying out in desperation. I believe that God wants to do that all over this place. The wind of the Spirit blowing through your life, blowing things off of your life and causing you to leave here today with hearts that are light, hearts that are free. So, Father, do it now, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Marriage class at four, we love you guys like crazy. All right, have a great week.